Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy, I hope you're staying happy, and I hope you're staying safe. A little bit later on in the show, we're going to meet Ian Reid, the Canadian author of the best-selling novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I'll also tell you about an exciting contest that gives you the chance to win $10,000 for making a short film inspired by the Christopher Nolan movie, Tenet. But first, I have to set things up a little bit so you'll know what Ian Reid and I are talking about. I'm Thinking of Ending Things has been described as a psychological thriller and horror fiction and is about a young man who takes his girlfriend to see his parents on a remote farm and the disturbing aftermath that follows. Now, it sounds simple, but this is anything but. It's a story of predetermination and free will that bears up to reading and then rereading. It's now also a film directed by Charlie Kaufman and currently playing on Netflix. To give you some context, I thought I'd play some clips of Charlie Kaufman and his stars, Tony Collette and Jesse Buckley, talking about the plot. Jake, my boyfriend. It's snowing. Winter is coming in. We have a real connection. A rare and intense attachment. I've never experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. It's so hard to describe. I don't know if you can describe what this is. It's about a young man and a young woman who are going on a road trip during a snowstorm to visit his parents who live in an isolated farmhouse. Um, he has, she's thinking of ending their relationship and he doesn't know. And um, that's kind of how it starts out. It is complex and exciting in its ideas, but ultimately it's about a kind of lonely, disconnected guy and deals with issues of, of loneliness and disconnection and um, hope for connection and longing and also memory and regret and guilt and all of the things that we grapple with as, as humans at some point. It's a trip and it's a kind of, uh, yeah, a road trip of, of memory of your, yeah, yourself and what you've become. A head trip. A head trip. All right, what they said. It's a road trip. It's a head trip, particularly in the film's final 20 minutes or so. So now you're up to speed on the story. Well, at least as much of the story as I can tell you without giving anything away. Let's meet Ian Reid, the author of the book, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I started the interview by congratulating him on his recent success. Oh, thank you. It's, it's um, you know, I was just talking to a friend recently who had picked up the book and was talking about it. And I even having friends be able to, you know, pick, read that book or any of my books, it, it, it's kind of, it, it's a surprising feeling because when I, especially when I started writing fiction, never really anticipated that I would even be able to find a publisher. You know, it's a, it's a, that I think many things is a fairly weird book. It's, it's unusual. And, and uh, so my hope was just to find a Canadian publisher if I got lucky. And uh, I, there was one, we had a few passes here in Canada and we got one publisher who made an offer. So yeah, it feels, it feels kind of surprising that, you know, I still feel surprised that w when people react to it, the book is out there and, but I'm, I'm grateful to, you know, that's what you want as a writer is people to be reading and reacting. So. Well, let's go back uh, a way. So your uh, father was a high school English teacher, uh, you, as well as a university lecturer. Your mother and yep. older sister were keen readers. Um, did that shape your love of storytelling? 
I think it did. Yeah. As you say, I, I grew up, my dad was an English prof and, and uh, my mom also loved books and, and, uh, and yes, two older siblings who were, were readers. So it was very normal for, for me to, to have books around the house, to have, uh, you know, discussions at the dinner table about certain novels and film. And so I think I'm fortunate for that, that I was kind of presented with those um, opportunities early on, that it was normal. And I, I didn't even necessarily come to it until a little bit later. I think because I was the youngest, often the discussion of some of the books were a little bit too advanced for me. So I kind of came to that as a little bit older, but definitely um, even now when I go back to my parents live on a small farm and when I go back there, there's still stacks of old books and I can find things that, I, you know, little gems that maybe were my dad's from the sixties or, and I, you know, I love that. I love doing that. There's little, always little nooks and crannies and full bookshelves that I can find stuff. So. Well, you did that for CBC for a little while, right? You found yeah, yeah, unusual exactly. and yes. arcane books for them. Ex yeah, exactly. That's actually what brought me back to the Ottawa area. I'd been living in, I kind of put off grad school. I moved to Toronto and was working at CBC and I pitched an idea to the Ottawa CBC that I could come back there and do a, a segment on the on on radio about old books and, and used bookstores. Mm -hmm. I, I sort of just came up with what for me was sort of like my dream job, which was like finding old books, reading them, and then kind of talking about if I thought they were still relevant or maybe they were dated or, and someone, a producer there kind of, you know, thankfully liked the idea and I was so excited. I just sort of left Toronto, moved up to Ottawa and without realizing that this was really a small thing that they, they weren't that it was going to be you know a five minute segment at five thirty in the morning no one was listening but i was very excited to do that and so that's actually what brought me back to auto and i moved back home and ended up writing my first book at that point so it was kind of funny how <clears throat> things worked out and i never had that in my mind but that's kind of what happened i love secondhand bookstores um I, you know i've written a few books and yeah. when people sometimes say oh i bought your book but i bought it at a secondhand bookstore and they're sort of almost embarrassed to tell you that yeah. because yeah. I, you know, you're not making any money from it. I'm like, do it. When I was a oh, kid, had no money. That's exactly. I had to do yes. It. No, exactly. I'm, I, I, I've, and I've seen a couple times my own book in a secondhand bookstore. And I, I find that exciting. It means there's another life out there. It means someone maybe read it and had a, had some interpretation of it. Maybe they liked it. Maybe they didn't, but now maybe someone else is going to come across that book. And so like you, I love even, I mean, again, I find sometimes people tell me, sort of apologetically oh, I read your book I got it from the library and I think that's amazing I love yeah use the libraries so any any for me it's if, if someone takes the time to read a book I wrote I also how they came across it if it's audiobook or ebook or libraries I mean it's just it's there's so many things to occupy our time now so it just feels lucky if someone takes the time to read one of yours you're listening to my interview with I'm thinking of ending things author Ian Reed. Now, after graduation, you had a variety of jobs. Uh, you were a call center employee. Uh, you yeah. worked in a restaurant. You were an yeah. intramural basketball coach. You did yeah. home renovations with a friend. What did yeah. you learn from all of those things that perhaps you use now? I think, I mean, one thing I think that is that just the, again, the idea that when I was living in Toronto, working all those different jobs, it was never, it never, it never sort of seemed possible that I would ever be kind of doing what I'm doing now as a job. I, I was doing those variety of things and then I would make time. I loved writing. I was, well, I, I was getting into the, into the process of, of writing at that point and, and really enjoying it. So um, anytime when I wasn't working, I often found myself at my desk writing little short stories. And, and so I think what I, I mean, something when I reflect on it now is just the idea that that was always going to be what I would be doing. I would be working jobs, and then when I would find the time, I would be kind of writing on the side. And, and that was just sort of what I had kind of come to accept. 
So to, to be able to now do it, it you know, as, as a, as a you know, day-to-day that I, you know, get to go down to my desk and work, it feels very fortunate and lucky. Um, and so I do, I often think back to that because, you know, most of those jobs I wasn't particularly good at and I was really wanting to be spending my time, you know, writing. And I don't know what I would be doing right now if I wasn't because I, I would have been making time to do it no matter what. But it's nice to be able to wake up in the morning and kind of have my, have a walk and then go to my desk and that's sort of my commute and I can start my work day. What do you love about it? Uh, you know, when you're working, I've done all those jobs. I've worked yeah. in bars and restaurants and all that kind of thing. Uh, and they're tiring. And at the end of the yeah, day, you it's don't hard, know, it's hard work. like going home and, and, you know, collecting your thoughts and getting them down on paper in some kind of coherent way. So what was it that, that drove you? I just felt, you know, for me, the word that I think of is just excitement. It felt exciting to me. Um, I think partially too, it was I, my coming from my love of reading um, and, and my love of movies as, you know, watching movies and stories. And but particularly, I think my love of reading and books at that point, I was reading all the time. And the idea to, for me to actually start writing uh, was new at that point. I didn't really have the ambition, even when I was at university to write creatively. I liked, you know, I enjoyed writing academically and my thought at that point was I was going to pursue a career in academics, maybe go to grad school. And, um, but once I moved to Toronto and I did start to find myself writing, it just, it even, yeah, days I was tired of days I've been working or it just, to me, always felt exciting to return to these stories and no one, you know, no one knew what I was doing. Uh, it was really just for me. I, I did send a few off eventually to, you know, literary magazines that most of them, well, in fact, I think all of them were rejected <laughs> rightfully that, you know, they weren't very good, but that's, it, you know, in those years I was really trying different things and just, it was difficult. I mean, that's the thing. It, it, it's not to say that I would sit down and it was, it felt easy. Mm-hmm. It just felt exciting. It felt challenging. And, and, and I knew that it was sort of something that would, was going to take me a long time to kind of understand. And I still, that's the thing. I think one of the reasons why I still like to do it is that it still feels that way. It still feels both exciting and challenging. And it's a, I think that blend, that mix is why I want to keep doing it. The rejection is an important part of all of this, though. I, I have a, a right. used to have a desk drawer right here that was filled with rejection letters, and I kept yes. them all back when yeah. you get a letter, you know, yeah. and now, yeah. now no, it's exactly. just a dismissive email. But no, I, I, I agree. I, I kept those, and, and I, they drove me somehow. And, yeah. you know, yeah. when you were rejected, it's easy to get uh, downtrodden about it. It's easy to think, okay, well, nobody likes my stuff you pushed through that and and how i think again i you know I, I think part of the reason why i kept doing it was because it was the work itself that for me at that time when i was writing those let's say two or three years in toronto it was really just drawing stuff it was it was me in my room no one asking for stuff there was no one was reading it there was no pressure so i think in some ways the the rejections didn't carry the same weight and it just allowed me to play around and do stuff. And I was only doing it for my own interest, for my own, you know, writing stuff that for me would be the kind of thing I'd want to read. Um, and I did, you know, I, I've come across, just like you were saying, you kept some of those letters. I actually kept some of the stories that I've been writing. Right. And boy, that's, that's really something to go back and read. Well, it's, it's really, it's really it's a humbler, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. And I think that's, the, I mean, I think again, to me, I'm sure I, I would always feel that way about anything I write. I could pick up any one of my books and flip through it. And I would, there'll be parts that would, I'm sure would, I'd want to rewrite. And I think I could probably comfortably, comfortably sort of rewrite one book my whole life because it's never exactly how you want it. Things change as you, you know, as you do something for longer. And if, you know, if you stay with something, but you never, at least in my case, you never feel fully comfortable or that you feel like you have a handle of it. And I think that's part of what 
part of what makes me want to keep writing and the combination of getting ideas and then feeling like it's, it's challenging and it's, and it's tricky, but then always that underlying sense of excitement that for some reason I still have when I kind of get to my desk. Well, the art of writing is in the rewriting. That's what yes, I've well, you're absolutely right. I think I've learned that through working closely with editors and, you know, feeling uh, grateful to get to the stage of a project when my editors come on board and, and they're, it's such a specific job to have editors. And then you're right. As you go through it, you realize certain things, each draft, how, how much better it can be and, you know, taking stuff out, adding stuff, but really, yeah, the, um, the removal is such because initially you think everything's important. And then as you go through it, but rewriting, revising, I think you're right. It's that's, you learn that as you go. That's such an important part of the process. I used to have a thing when I first started writing, I had a, a two page spread from an old Rolling Stone magazine and yeah. it was an ad for something. I don't even remember what the ad was for, but it was uh, Kurt Vonnegut Jr.'s tips on how to write well. And yes, uh, it was right. a picture of him at a desk and the first one was tell a good story and then the next nine were keep it simple. Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. I think that, I mean, that's that goes back to, you know, the elements of style and just mm -hmm. really, I think, getting out of your own way a little bit. And I, you know, particularly with nonfiction, I think that's that kind of stuff is important to remember clarity and trying to make it easier on the person reading it. Um, when you get into fiction, it starts, you can get a bit more... Um, complicated in a way because maybe a certain character speaks in a way that's complex or that's wordy or, but that's again, part of the fun is trying to do that. But I think keeping it simple, not getting um, too lost in your own, in your own head and your own thoughts and remembering eventually that someone's going to read this. And I think that's something that I tend not to do so much is to think about a reader. I like to just think about the work and think about the story, but at some point you do have to recognize that it has to be readable. It has to be coherent. Even if you want to try doing things that are a little bit more, you know, experimental or different, at some point someone's going to have to make sense of it. You're listening to my interview with I'm Thinking of Ending Things author Ian Reed. When we look back to the first couple of books, they're memoirs, they're, they're light, they are yes, funny yeah. by times, they were much different yeah. people than, than yeah. recent work. Um, yeah. Bird's Choice uh, tells the story of your decision to move back in with your mother and father. And yeah. before we talk about the book, I was just wondering that in light of the pandemic, so many people are doing this now. This is something that's happening. Do you have any advice yeah. for them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, because it came up when that when One Bird's Choice came out, I think a lot of people would come to uh, readings and, and, and ask and, and tell me that they have done something similar. They were about to go, you know, move in with a, a relative or it, it is so common. And you're right now, particularly it's happening. And I think something that I uh, didn't anticipate when I did that was just how much you can appreciate the people in your family after having some time away and then being with them at a different stage of your own life. So for me to kind of be around my parents, my whole life as a child growing up, we, everybody was busy. You're doing your own thing and you're kind of inherently self-obsessed as a child. So to kind of, you know, go away, be at university, be living in Toronto for a number of years to return then as an adult and to live with them and to have had experiences of my, of my own and to see them and reflect on their relationship and them as people and things that they would have done for me when I was younger that I wouldn't have, it was, it was, really nice I, and I think that's why the tone of that book is you know hopefully kind of gentle and pleasant because that was sort of my easing into that year was sort of initially feeling sorry for myself that I had to move back to the farm and then as the year wore on I started to really appreciate both the landscape the the, the small little you know 200 year old farmhouse I grew up in but also my parents and and just how they interacted and 
I think that for me is what I would tell people. It's just sort of, you know, try and try and think about the people you're living with and, and, and not be just initially frustrated or because that can happen too, but sort of think about some of the, some of the ways that you can interact or some of the things that you can appreciate about them that maybe you wouldn't have even known about if you weren't living there. Now the, the, the tone of that book, they, the, the two of them, the two memoirs were very successful. Uh, and then you came out with, I'm thinking of ending things here, which is a very different book. And I would suggest that probably you could have gone on writing memoirs and slice of life stories and books uh, and successfully probably for as long as you would care to do that. Tell me about switching up uh, to writing fiction for one thing in, in this form uh, and, and the, the, the inherent kind of darkness that comes along with this story. Uh, this is a, a, a story that for me is internal. It is yeah. uh, creepy. <laughs> There's, yeah. it, it does not feel like the first two books. No, I think, I think it is very, um, I think it's, you know, philosophical. It's the, I think more than anything, I'm thinking of ending things is about questions and questions that for me at that time were quite personal questions I've been thinking about. And, and I think that's what drew me to write this story was that I, I, I knew I wanted to write fiction for a long time. I read more fiction, but it's, it's also harder for me. It's, 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 it's more challenging than writing nonfiction where you're just reacting to what's happening. So I, I wanted to try writing nonfiction first. And then when I felt like I was maybe ready to try a novel, this was, this was um, in my mind, this was an idea that I had that, that again, I think if I'm going to write anything, it has to feel personal. I have to have a connection to it. Otherwise, it's hard to justify, you know, sitting down for a couple of years, for me anyway, and writing it. So I, I knew I wanted to be something that I would be thinking about seriously. And that meant something to me that felt somehow truthful. And so I just kind of started writing it. And also because I'd never done anything like it. And that's another part of the appeal of writing for me is to never feel like you're repeating yourself. And so those first two books, I think, although they were about different things, they had a similar tone. And, and so I really wanted to try something different. And I had, you know, studied some philosophy at university. And I think the content or the ideas of the story that I had in my mind, I, I thought really um, connected well to some of the ideas I had studied um, in, in my philosophy courses. And, and they also to me felt um, aligned with suspense. They were suspenseful to me just um, thinking about them. And so that I think is why I've never really thought of the book as a thriller. And some people call it that, you know, I've seen it in bookstores under the thriller and that's fine. You know, I'd like people interpreting it however they want, but for me, it was never a thriller. There are moments of suspense, obviously, but really it's more just a literary novel. It's, as you said, it's internal and it's really about ideas and questions. And then, and then I love how people are going to, how people will, if they do read it, can interpret the story their own way. And I, and I like asking people who have read it what they think it means um, I don't like to tell them what it means for me because I don't want to influence them, but I've had a variety of different reactions to it. Yeah. Whenever anyone would ask Andy Warhol uh, what his paintings meant, he would always just say, well, what did they mean to you? Oh, interesting. And, and yeah, that is, yeah. that, that's, that's really all that matters. I suppose. I really, I really feel that way. Yeah. About these books. I, I, I like that idea, you know, especially when you think about a novel, it takes hours to read of quiet time, someone sitting alone in a room focused. That's a, they're, they're putting a lot into it. So for me, of course, they then have the authority to say what this book is and what it's about. And it's very personal. Any, anytime you read a book, it's intimate, it's personal. So for me to say, here's what you should get from this book seems silly. Why, why, write, why write it, you know, and why take the time to read it? I think that's part of the fun. And I love that as a reader when I sit down with a book and then I get to, you know, maybe you read the same book and we have two different versions of it. And I think that that for me is a, I like that. I like that a lot. The ending is ambiguous. 
in, in, in many ways. Was there ever any pushback from the publisher to sort of put a little bit more of a bow on it or no? No, thankfully. And I, you know, when we first were submitting it, um, there, especially in the States, there was, a, there were a few publishers who seemed interested, but then I think exactly that they were, they were a little concerned about the open, how it was open-ended and yeah, that was left for interpretation. And I think they would have liked it to be, um, you know, wrapped up in a more concise way or a more traditional way. And so some of the experimental aspects of the story, they probably were not, um, not too fond of, but the publisher I ended up finding, Simon Schuster in the States, uh, and, and Alison Callahan, the editor there, um, really liked that. And so I, you know, I found the one editor, I think, who really responded to that and who was um, understood, I think, what I was trying to do and how that in this, in this novel, the whole novel would have been different if we, if we changed the ending. And, and, you know, I didn't know that ending when I started writing and I, I didn't have an outline or anything. I had this idea in my head about what I wanted to write about. And I had this, you know, idea of this couple going on a road trip and I kind of started from there. And as I wrote it, everything kind of came and fell into place. And uh, so I'm, yeah, no, I'm really grateful. I, I don't think I would have been able to, I, I would have rather not published it right. um, than publish it with a different ending, I think so. You're listening to my interview with I'm Thinking of Ending Things author Ian Reed. Okay, though, so then Netflix enters the picture. And yeah. you, in, in uh, of all the people that I can think of that, that could have directed this, Charlie Kaufman, would be on that list absolutely maybe i don't know David yeah. Beach, maybe there's a there's a handful yeah. of people yes that yeah. might have uh been able to hit the tone that you need to hit with this and take a book that is very much internal very much in someone's head and yes. turn it into uh, a film that is as compelling as the one uh that Charlie right. Hoffman made was there yeah. were you nervous about that what would happen or are you like raymond chandler and say well my books aren't ruined they're right up there on the shelf yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a little bit of, of both. Although I wasn't nervous, I think that's true. Always the book is, will always be there and it's always the book. I think part of the fear about, you know, this was my first time having something adapted is that you're, yeah, you're not sure how it's going to be adapted. And then that's, once people see it, that's what, even if they go back and read the book, they're going to be picturing the film. So, you know, yes, that I think can happen. But in this case, I, I, I'm, I feel very fortunate because I was a fan of Charlie's before anything ever happened with our project. Mm -hmm. And so when that, when that first, when he first approached me, I was just excited to talk to him. I was, you know, thrilled to talk to someone who I admired. And, and so I never worried at all about that. I never worried about what the, what the adaptation would look like, or, um, you know, I knew he was going to be the one writing it and I knew he was going to be the one directing it and that there would be great people involved and actors. And so it didn't guarantee that I would like it, but I also was very comfortable knowing that it was someone like Charlie doing it. And, and, and it was, it was thrilling to actually to go through the process and read the script and, and then ultimately seeing the movie. I love it. I think it's a, I really think it's, um, it's unclassifiable. It's bold. And I think I'm just, I think it's, it's Netflix making this kind of movie in 2020. Um, I think is a good sign, you know, and, but, and allowing someone like Charlie to do this, I, I you know, I, I really appreciate what they've done. You don't have to go. I don't have to go where? Forward. People like to think of themselves as points moving through time. But I think it's the opposite. We're stationary. And time passes through us. <laughs> blowing like cold wind. Maybe this is how it was always going to end. 
I think so too. Uh, you know, as the theaters have increasingly become the realm of superhero movies, and nothing wrong with That's them, right. but they're a different, right. they're a different kind of thing, right? That's right. Uh, movies like this need a home, and I think Netflix yes. uh, stepping out and doing something is 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 remarkable because I will tell exactly. you the last. 20 minutes of this movie and this gives yeah. nothing away is as no. trippy as anything yes. I've seen on film for a very yeah. long time. Exactly. I, I agree. It's really unlike, you're right. It's unlike, it's unlike anything else I've seen. And I think also to just the, at, at moments it's funny at moments, it's really sad at moments. It's a little bit unsettling. It's, I find it quite moving and, you know, being able to hit all those beats and notes, I think also is also says something about the acting. And I think the acting is really quite remarkable too. Um, again, going into it, I was expecting that when, when, when the cast was put together, but to actually, you know, see them and see the finished product, I, th- I, I'm ex- I look forward to people reacting to the actors. And, and I think just because again, what it's, it's such a, it's a, it's a different kind of piece. And I think they, they all did really well. Of all the, the, the leads of the, of the four, essentially there's four leads in this, um, of yeah. all of them, Jesse Buckley is probably the name that not a lot of yeah. people know. Yeah. But she is remarkable. Uh, she, she's uh, remarkable. She is remarkable. She made uh, a film, uh, I think it was called Little Bird, where she played a, a, a singer-songwriter in Scotland who desperately wanted to be a country singer. That's the first time that I saw her. Right. And I, I thought to myself, she is somebody to look out for. No, she, I mean, I really think she is a star, uh, you know, and you can kind of see it in this movie, um, what she, what she portrays, how she does it. Um, and right from the beginning, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, a challenging shoot, I think. And mm-hmm. um, she's really memorable. And I think, I think that's going to be one of the things that really s- stands out with this movie is people coming to see her and really appreciating her. And I'm just, I'm really ex- excited to see what she does next too, because she's so talented. Those scenes in the car, you know, as they're yes, driving yes. and, and yeah. it feels like, and I, I mean, I wasn't looking at my watch, but it felt like some of them are 15 minutes long and it's the two yes. of them talking and some of it's internal and some of it's not. That's right. And That's yet right. it's all very interesting. It all, yes. it, it, it yeah. all captures you. And how, and, how different it is from, you know, there's basically the, the, the car ride there and then the car ride back yeah. and they're, and they're yeah. very different, you know. Well, and, and I love I, that Kaufman take, took his time to show us that though. Yeah, I think yeah, that that's a right. lot it's of other directors through. may have wanted to condense that a little bit, or or give you sort of broader strokes of what was happening between them at the time. And that's and he point. doesn't. He takes the time to do it, yeah, and exactly. that's why I think the payoff much later yes, in the yeah. film is so much bigger yeah. than it so might be. So more meaningful. No, you're right. I think that just and that's there's a lot of little unusual things I think about this movie, which is why to me it kind of. In, in some ways I thought about this writing the book sort of demands a second or third viewing yeah. and is, is a different experience. And that was in my mind writing the book too. And that's why the book is so short and why, you know, going back to what you were saying about revising, a lot of what the revising I did was to remove stuff because I wanted people to feel it got to the end. Well, it's not so daunting to start it over. If it was right. a, you know, four or 500 page book, they might not want to, but 200 page book, you can kind of, and then hopefully it was going to be a totally different experience the second time. And I, I do think the movie's like that as well. I've seen it a few times and it's different each time. Yeah, I'm sure there's people out there that have read War and Peace more than once, but I exactly. don't know many of them. <laughs> no, I don't know many of them either. It's a, it's a, it's a good book, but that's, yeah. That's right. And uh, Foe is out now and doing yes. well. And, and Yeah, Foe is out. Yeah, yeah. And um, I have, yeah, it's, it's you know, again, I, for me, the, the, the literary world, kind of moves fairly slowly compared to other worlds. So it's usually two, three years for me as I, as I kind of plod through stuff. But um, 
you know, I've had, I've had lots of time this summer to be writing and I have a couple of new things I've been working on. So it feels, you know, feels lucky to be doing that right now too. Well, congratulations on everything, the movie, uh, the books, and, and whatever it is that you're working on now. Well, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Nice to talk to you. That was my interview with Ian Reed. Find his books, I'm Thinking of Ending Things and Foe, wherever you buy fine books. Also, check out the movie, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, on Netflix right now. In Midsommar, a couple travels to Sweden to visit a rural festival, what begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult. It's sort of a crazy festival. Special ceremonies and dressing up. That sounds fun. Unbelievable. Welcome and happy midsummer. Skull! Joining me are writer and director Ari Aster and star Jack Rayner, who plays Christian in the film. Welcome. Jack, there's a, a scene where a very elaborate ceremony happens that ends in kind of a, a, a terrifying way. And the, the villagers are completely comfortable with the idea of what's happening. It's part of their tradition. The Americans that are there, of which you play one of them, um, are, are horrified by what they've seen. But as I was watching it, I, I couldn't help but think, because it, it, it's explained, and again, I'm talking around it so we don't give anything away, but it's explained why this, this ceremony happens. And it really struck me that the horror is just cultural. You know, the the horror is just because you don't understand as an American yeah. person in that situation, you don't get that there are hundreds, if not thousands of years of tradition behind this. And it seems terrifying because of your uh, uh, North American beliefs or, or, or tenants or whatever. But it, it, it for them is completely natural. So it's not exact again not exactly horror but it's a horrifying situation yeah i think one of the really strong things about the film just to go back to the folkloric aspect of it is that um you know like so i come from i come from ireland and obviously we have a rich mythological tradition um that extends back beyond the pre-christian era and we didn't write anything before christianity arrived in ireland so our history and our mythology are very closely entwined um, and there are customs and beliefs attached to that that are very strange, particularly for people today. Right. Um, and something that I love about this film is that uh, it being based in this kind of folkloric element, it kind of forces the audience, much like it does with the, the humor that you're talking about, it kind of forces the audience to kind of let go of their... Um, understanding of you know the social structures that we live in and, and even our, our kind of moral code that we live by and to be constantly interrogating that and reassessing it as they're watching the film uh, much like these young anthropological American students mm -hmm. do you know um, and I think that that's just a really great setup and and kind of builds the tension for the audience in a really interesting way the bit that I didn't set up in this is that this takes place at a midnight sun ceremony in Sweden so it's daylight pretty much 24 hours a day except you didn't shoot when it was 24 hours a day so yeah. was that complicating things as you talk about shadows would be ever shifting you probably only have a certain amount of hours in a day that you can shoot rather mm -hmm. than this unlimited time you may only have you know five six hours a day what kind of complications does that uh, lead to you as a director and is that why you didn't eat for like three months on the set i was told you didn't eat anything <laughs> 
out of stress for for that amount of time. Uh, well, it, it it sounds like you might have heard that from from Florence, yes. who was always uh, pushing. Um, protein bars on me, mm-hmm. um, despite the fact that I, I was eating just fine. Oh, okay. Uh, All right. But, but may, maybe, not, may, maybe not while we were shooting. It, yeah, was, yeah. it was at night that I kind of caught up on what I right. hadn't eaten uh, during the day. But, um, but yeah, no, logistically, this was a tough one. Um, we, uh, we were shooting in Hungary, um, so we didn't have the, uh, the 24-7 sun that, that you'd find in Sweden. Um, we we uh, we weren't able to shoot in Sweden because it would have been just too expensive. You know, we we are a low budget film, um, and uh, and we built this entire village from scratch. And so uh, I could have only done that um, in a place like Hungary. Um, and uh, and so yeah, we were shooting French hours, which is uh, ten hours with no lunch, and it it was. Uh, it was pretty rare for us to get off the first shot before, uh, like, three hours into the day just because of logistics and you have, you know, a, a large crew that, again, um, uh, speaks Hungarian yeah. and, and not English. And then you have um, you have 60 to 80 uh, background actors that you have to, you know, uh, um, block out and uh, and they're dancing and they're and a lot there's choreography involved even when they're not dancing they seem to be doing hand gestures that were all very choreographed it felt like exactly you got people in the foreground midground and background mm-hmm. and they all have to be hitting certain marks at at certain times and so it uh, the choreography was very difficult and uh, and um, and so you know we 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 found ourselves you know shooting. Se- about seven to eight hours each day, which which is uh, not not much, yeah. um, uh, especially after Hereditary, where we were shooting you know up to fourteen hours a day, uh, which was a luxury, and we were you know sh- shooting that on a stage. Um, but which uh, you can control, yeah, yeah which you yeah. can control, and and ultimately you know we are we are tr- hoping to make a very beautiful film, and mm-hmm. but the sun you know doesn't care what you're trying to do. <laughs> Um, it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, rise, uh, on the east yep. and, and then it's gonna set, you know, over on the at, west. And, at a certain time and that's that. Yeah. What's happening? I don't know why you invited us. That's why you look so guilty right now because you know. We only do this every 90 years. most excited for you to come. Midsommar is a very tough movie to categorize. It's not exactly a horror film, although there are some absolutely horrifying moments. It's more the story of a woman trapped in a loveless relationship who lost one family only to find another under very strange circumstances. Elements of high school rom-coms and revenge films echo throughout this wild and trippy movie. Midsommar may be the very definition of a movie that's not for everyone. A colleague of mine who has sat through more movies with me than either of us could possibly remember declared it one of the worst films she has ever seen. But that's the subjectivity of art, the polarizing nature of a film that doesn't fit easily into any definable category. I wanted to share it with you today because you can find it on VOD and it is something, certainly, even if you don't like it, that you won't be able to help yourself but talk to your friends about. It's that kind of movie.
Well, that's it for today. My thanks to everyone for coming by. Ian Reed, the author of I'm Thinking of Ending Things. You can pick up the book wherever you buy fine books. You can watch the movie of it on Netflix. And also my thanks to Ari Aster, director of Midsommar and his star Jack Rayner. Most of all, though, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy. I hope you're staying healthy. I hope you're staying safe. And we'll talk again soon.